Turn in those Bibles that you now all have. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. And so far in the first half of chapter 21, we've seen these three specific signs that we said signified judgment that was going to come upon the Jewish people for their coming rejection of Jesus. On Palm Sunday, remember, we looked at the first, that was the presentation of the king. It was picturing Israel's spiritual blindness. And then last week, we looked at the other two, the purifying of the temple, which identified Israel's inward corruption. And then finally, we looked at the cursing of the fig tree, which focused on Israel's outward fruitlessness. Now this morning, as we continue and conclude chapter 21, we have these religious leaders that are going to confront Jesus, and we're going to see that he responds. He follows up those three, those three signs with three specific parables. And this morning, we're going to see the first two. We're going to look at the parable of the two sons. We're going to look at the parable of the wicked workers. And then the last one of those three parables we'll look at next week. Happy Mother's Day. It's the parable of the marriage feast. So I think as we see, we're going to see these are some of the parables that Jesus told. These parables are really packed with a punch, if you will. And they even, we're going to see at the end of our text today, that one of these parables even begins to penetrate even the hardened hearts of these rebellious religious leaders. And so they're still no less important for us to consider personally and for people to consider collectively uh, today. So let's uh, ask the Lord, pray and ask him to bless our time that he penetrate our hearts as well. So Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, our time of worship. We thank you for this precious kids, Lord, as they led us in worship. We thank you for the opportunity now, Lord, to go to your word. And we do pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us corporately, but we pray as well, Lord, that you'd speak to each one of us individually and personally this morning, Lord. And we thank you. We look forward expectantly, Lord, to those things that you want to do in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. He'd been up on the Temple Mount. He had been there in the court of the Gentiles, turning over the tables, cleansing the temple. Remember, he made way for all of the outcasts to come to him and to be healed. We then saw him spend the night out at Bethany, probably at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then the next morning on his way back into Jerusalem, we had the incident with the fig tree. And so we pick up here in verse 23, it says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, admittedly, these guys were blind, right, to who Jesus really was. But really, all things being equal, this wasn't a bad question for them to be asking. Right? They were the religious leaders. They were the custodians of the spiritual life of the nation. And yet we continue to be amazed at their ignorance. Right? Jesus had given them three years of ministry, and yet here they still refuse to face the facts. And we've talked before, they're protecting their positions more so than they're protecting the people, right? These were the professionals, right? They had this formal training. They had the human appointment, right? They were authorized to direct the religious lives of the people. And this Jesus, he had no formal schooling. Certainly he had no credentials given to him by the rulers. And so this challenge to and, and their opposition of Jesus, it really, I think, just reflects kind of that age-old resentment that so often you see from professional religious, you know, religionists against men who show up on the scene with this power of divine anointing, right? That's their, really the sign of their divine authority. And of course, Authority was the real question here, and it still is today. It's the question that everyone has to answer is whether or not Jesus actually has any authority over their lives. 
we look around and we can see that so many give authority to false religious teachers or to false systems and the claims and the teachings of these systems and teachers so often they contradict the teachings of Jesus. And so people are faced with this dilemma. Maybe it's this system that my family has embraced for years, but now the more I learn, the more I see that it's kind of at odds with the things that I'm reading that Jesus is saying. And so who am I to believe? And as we just looked at a couple Sundays back on Easter, Jesus is the only one, isn't he, who made these kind of radical claims and who did these kind of controversial teachings. He's the only one that did those things and then what? Then rose from the dead, didn't he, as proof, evidence of his authority and the anointing that he had. We talked about the fact that if you're looking for directions... You're probably not going to ask a dead man. You're going to ask the live one who's standing right there next to him. So Jesus had just come in. He'd done some pretty shocking things out there in the courts. But now the next day, here we see he's moved inside the walls proper of the temple. And he's in one of the inner courts and he's teaching a whole crowd of folks. Notice the boldness of these men. They didn't simply pull him aside privately. They, they wanted to interrupt him publicly as he's actively teaching the people because I think probably in their minds they assumed that this would work in their favor as they were going to trap Jesus in his own words. And yet, of course, we're going to see that all it really did was it made their own humiliation a very public spectacle. Right here, they demanded this answer from him. It says in verse 24, but Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, likewise, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus says, hey, I'll explain my authority if you answer my question. Verse 25, he says, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now, as he so often did, Jesus answers their question with another question. He says, hey, remember John? Was his ministry from God or was his ministry simply done in his own energy? Who authorized him to carry out his ministry? Was his ordination from God or, you know, what credentials did he hold from Israel's teachers? And, of course, the answer to everyone standing there was obvious John was a man who'd been sent by God. His power came from, we could say it came from divine endowment and not from human endorsement. And in taking them back to this question of the ministry of John, Jesus wasn't trying to evade the issue. He was really hitting at the heart of it. Because remember, John had been sent to do what? He'd been sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And in doing that, we remember that he had made some pretty bold declarations about Jesus. Just in John chapter 3, he said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And he who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, had the rulers simply received John's ministry, they would have also received Jesus. But instead, what did the leaders do? They allowed Herod to arrest John and then to put him to death. And so the reasoning here from Jesus is, look, if they wouldn't accept the authority of John, then they're also not going to accept the authority of Jesus because both Jesus and John were sent by God. So he asks about John's authority. Where did it come from? And it seemed to be a fairly simple question. It was a question I would propose that they all knew the answer to. But watch the way it prompted this debate among the religious leaders. Look at the rest of verse 25. It says that they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, 
we fear the multitudes for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. <laughs> so realizing they'd been backed into a corner, here these chief priests, these religious rulers, simply refused to answer. And what they did is they basically lied. They've refused to face the facts, and so they kind of plead ignorance to the whole deal. And for so many people today, this is also still their best answer. Presented with the facts about Jesus, they simply plead ignorance. Right? They claim to be agnostic or without knowledge. And they would claim, maybe even sincerely, that there's just not enough information to make any kind of an accurate decision. Maybe you've seen this cartoon. It's hard to read, but the writing says, I think I might be agnostic, but I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but the reality is, it's not a matter of needing more information. It's a matter of refusing to take a position. It's a matter in people's lives of refusing to make a decision because the information is there for anyone who is honestly seeking to know the truth. We are there to come alongside these people and to help lead them into the truth. For these guys, notice that the answer that they did give, they only gave after very carefully calculating the political consequences of their answer. Right? They weren't at all interested in answering the question honestly or truthfully. They were only interested in answering very shrewdly, right, calculatingly. They were more interested in the opinions of the multitude than they were about seeking out the truth of God. So Jesus didn't answer their question. Look at the rest of verse 27. It says, and he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, if you won't answer me, I have no obligation to answer you. Why should he tell them what they already knew but were completely unwilling to admit? There's an old expression, maybe you've heard it, it says that there are none so blind as those who will not see. And I was thinking about this this week and thinking, you know, we notice in the, the ministry and in the life of Jesus that he constantly, he kindly, he compassionately met the needs of the hurting multitudes whenever they would throw themselves at his mercy. How many times over and over have we read, like in Matthew 12, it says, many followed him and he healed what? Them all. Or in chapter 14, it says that they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. In chapter 15, it said that large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame and crippled, blind, mute, many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and what did he do? And he healed them. And in fact, in just a quick search, I found 41 different references to Jesus healing and touching lives and restoring the broken. So Jesus always had grace and mercy and compassion on the multitudes. And yet we see that Jesus didn't demonstrate much patience at all with those who were blindly and willingly rejecting him. Those who would arrogantly question him and try to trap him in his own words because he knows that they just won't receive it. They're just not open to it. And I think that that's so true for us in our own Christian experience that so often we can't learn new truth until we start to really walk in the truth that God has already given to us. In John chapter 7, it says that if any man is willing to do his will, then he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God. And there's a sense in which our obedience brings both confirmation and it unlocks more revelation. Simply said, the more we do, the more we understand, and then the more is revealed 
to us. But it's at those times, I think, you've probably never done this, but maybe it's just me, those times when we dig in our heels, right, in those areas that the Lord is, the Spirit is speaking into our lives, when we blindly refuse to see, we refuse to hear the things he's saying to us, at those points, I just don't think that we can expect further revelation and more direction until we do the things he's already put on our hearts. And here these religious leaders, they had rejected the truth that was preached by John. Therefore, Jesus, effectively, he couldn't impart any new truth to them. He can't answer their question directly because he knew that they would simply reject it. So what does he do? What he does do is he'll launch back into this series of three parables. And through these parables, he effectively will answer them, but he'll do it indirectly. Remember, a parable is just a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? It presents these clear illustrations from everyday events, but it has all this spiritual, scriptural truth that's packed into them for anybody who's willing to receive it. So he's still trying to help even his enemies understand. And so Jesus begins now with this parable of the two sons. In verse 28, he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second, and he said, likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. So in this parable of the, the, the two sons, of course, the vineyard, we've seen the scripture before, the vineyard speaks of the nation of Israel. And the two sons in this case, Jesus is going to point out to us later, the two sons stand for the two different types or the two classes of people in that nation. First of all, the self-righteous religious people, and then the common people, the, the, the sinners, right? And both of these sons were asked to respond to the father's request to go work in the vineyard, which specifically in the context of this question about John the Baptist, specifically that question and is their response or their obedience to John's ministry. And so the first son, right, these common sinners who initially rejected the things of God, they refused, but then they changed their minds and went. The other son, right, these self-righteous religious people, agreed to go, but never did. Watch what happens. He asks in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. So obviously not recognizing themselves as the second son, the religious leaders unwittingly have just condemned themselves. And Jesus says to them, the end of 31, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Ouch, right? So this parable is a sharp and a stinging rebuke to these chief priests and the elders for the way that they failed to be obedient and respond to John's ministry. He came preaching this necessity of righteousness through repentance and faith. And leaving no room to be misunderstood here, Jesus gives us the interpretation of the parable here in the application of the parable. He likens the prostitutes and the, the publicans, right, that non-religious crowd. He says that they're the first son because they seemed to have no interest in John's ministry, but eventually they did receive him. They made no immediate show, right, of, of repentance, but eventually many of them did heed John's words. They repented of their sins, they were baptized, and eventually they would believe in Jesus. On the other hand, like the second son, we have these pseudo-religious scribes and Pharisees. They gave lip service 
to the preaching of John because when he came ministering to the religious crowds, they showed this interest in his work. They maybe even professed to approve the preaching, but we never saw that they would humble themselves. They certainly didn't submit themselves to his baptism. They would never confess their sins and they never trusted the Savior. So the out and out sinners were the ones that entered into the kingdom of God while the self-satisfied, righteous, religious people remained outside. And can I tell you that it's no different today, is it? Because so often what we see is that, you know, it's the avowed sinners that receive the gospel more readily than those who have this outward appearance of false piety. Because it really is possible that so often it's the trimmings and the trappings of religion that actually get in the way of us having a relationship with the Lord Jesus. How many people do we know maybe who've joined the church, they're religious, they think that they're Christians, but they're not. Because the hard truth is that being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than what? Any more than being in a garage makes you a car, right? There's many people going to church today who are imitating this second son. They may go to church every single Sunday. They may be able to perform all of the church rituals. They may be able to recite the doctrines. They may even agree that the word of God is true. They're keeping up all of the appearances of religion externally, but their hearts have never actually been made right with God internally. They may think that words and, and promises are enough. They may intend to get serious with the Lord someday. They may talk a lot about going and doing the Father's work, but they're not really genuine believers unless there's been a true transformation in their lives. That's why the Apostle Paul says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation and what? Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. There should be this radical, refreshing newness about somebody who's been truly converted. Not simply you know, a desire for something new, or not a discussion about something new, not an interest in something new, but something that really is new. Spurgeon said this, he said, the second son said, I go, sir, but he went not. And these people do not go. They talk of repenting, but they do not repent. They speak of believing, but they never believe. They think of submitting to God, but they have not submitted themselves to him yet. They say it is time they broke up the fallow ground and sought the Lord, but they do not seek him. It all ends in a mere promise. So the point of the parable in our lives is clear. What matters most is living for God, not just the appearance of it, not just saying the right words. And these religious leaders were great at talking all the righteous talk, but their stubbornly unrepentant hearts showed that repentant sinners would be the ones to enter the kingdom long before they did. And so here they stood there, now in front of this huge crowd, they stood there absolutely condemned. And no doubt, imagine how stunned they must have been by Jesus' words. He couldn't have chosen more charged language than to contrast these proud men with what literally was the scourge of society, tax collectors, prostitutes. He said they would be entering the kingdom, and you religious leaders, you are not. And these men must have been absolutely incensed. And I love that because I believe that Jesus did this entirely by design. He wasn't simply trying to upset them because he gets pleasure from upsetting them, maybe like I would, right? <laughs> but this charged language from Jesus, it was sanctified. It was designed to get a reaction from them. 
because he loved them and he's still trying to reach out to them and he's trying to provoke them to respond and to listen and to be obedient to the father. Some students additionally in this parable they see that it pictures Israel's rejection of the father firstly because in rejecting John they were specifically rejecting the father because the father's the one who had sent him and yet God is so gracious because instead of sending judgment as they probably deserved he sent his son and that takes us right into this next parable because just in case they didn't fully understand which I believe they did fully understand but Jesus is going to give them this next even clearer picture of what he means it also gives everybody else who was there watching it gives us who are reading and studying it today it gives us a real opportunity I think to hear Jesus fully explain the far-reaching implications of the disobedience of his people throughout the ages it's this parable of the wicked workers look at verse 33 through 36 he says here another parable there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country now when vintage time drew near he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. So in this parable, we're still here at the vineyard. And this parable is based closely on Isaiah chapter 5, in which you see the Lord lamenting that Israel had been carefully prepared by him to be a fruitful vineyard. And in it, he reminds the Jews of his goodness to them as a nation. First, we see it in the imagery here that God had delivered them from Egypt. He had planted them in this rich land of milk and honey. So that's the vineyard, right? That hedge around it. He gave them the law of Moses. The law of Moses is what kept them distinct as God's people, it protected them. It kept them from being absorbed by all of the Gentile nations around them. Here it says he put a wine press in it. Re represents the fact that God had raised up the nation of Israel in order that he would get fruit from it. Right? They were intended to bear fruit and to draw nations to the Lord. Here it says he put a tower in it. That's God's protection of the nation of Israel, his consistent watch that he kept over them. The vine dressers are the Jewish religious leaders that were entrusted with the care of the nation. And then the servants that were sent by the landowner who were continually abused by these vine dressers, those servants represent all of the prophets that God had sent to his people all throughout their history who we see abused by the nation of Israel, right? Abused and stoned and oftentimes killed, but not by the pagan Gentile nations around them. They were killed and abused by the religious leaders right there within their own country. We think about Isaiah, right? Sawn in two. We think about the loneliness of Jeremiah. We think about the difficulty of Ezekiel's ministry. And all of these things were as a result of the abuse they suffered at the hands of the leadership. In, in Stephen's address to them in Acts chapter 7, he finishes up, he asks the question, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Incidentally, if you're familiar with that chapter, it was immediately after that statement immediately after he confronted them with that truth that they stoned him to. And I have to believe that in, in this parable, with all of this detail, Jesus is not only reminding these religious leaders of what they were like, but I think he had to also be building in their minds on top of that last parable about John, 
And he's building in this question of how could you possibly claim obedience as God's people and still reject and even kill all of the messengers that God sent to you. So we have this theme in the history of Israel, God's gracious, repeated appeal to them through his prophets to an utterly unrepentant people. I'm so glad none of our lives look anything like that. You can smile at that, by the way. (laughs) So with that, the next question, right, we're finishing up this parable, would be what in the world should the landowner do at this point? Look at verse 37. It says, then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. So he could have sent soldiers, right, armies to destroy these wicked men, but instead he sends his son. And the author to the Hebrews explains that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And nonetheless, rather than respond to him, verse 38 says, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So we know Jesus is rejected by the very ones he came to save. He was taken outside we know, of the city gates to be crucified on Calvary. Again, in Hebrews it says that Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside of the gate. And it's interesting to me, the law at that time provided that if there were no heirs to a specific property, then the property by default would pass to the ones who were in possession of it. So here, these wicked workers wanted to keep a tight hold on what it is that they thought was rightly theirs. Really, they were trying to hold on to their power and to their position. And in the parable, notice those religious leaders are quoted to have said, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And yet in real life, what we're about to see that they would soon say, in John chapter 11... They say, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they rejected him and they threw him out and they crucified him. And this part of the parable in particular, I think is eerily prophetic. Notice in the sense that Jesus is now telling them exactly what they are about to do to him just a few days from now. And of course, they still have no idea that he's talking about them at all. Look at verse 40. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, well, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Ouch for the second time. And that one really hurt. These poor guys, think about it here. They were so caught up in the drama of the story. They were so blinded by their pride. They had no idea they had just passed sentence on themselves. And it was a pretty harsh Sentence two, I'm not exactly sure what they mean by saying that the owner should destroy those wicked men miserably, but I can say that doesn't sound good at all, to be destroyed miserably. It's ironic, not only was Jesus speaking prophetically, but now notice that even these rebellious religious leaders rightly are prophesying their own fate. And the fate of the nation. Look at verse 42. Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? 
that the stone which the building re uh, builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here Jesus quotes Psalm 118. It was the very messianic song we remember was sung by the people during his recent triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was one of the most well-known messianic psalms, and it declared that the Messiah would be rejected by Israel. And you have to think about it, this application to Jesus from the Palm Sunday, you know, from the recent ride into town, that had to still be rolling around in the minds of the rulers. And now here Jesus clearly connects this prophecy to himself one more time. And he does it to explain that he was the son, the religious leaders were the vine dressers, and even though they would reject him, that he is still the chief cornerstone, that he is still the fulfillment of this great messianic psalm. And it's interesting because historically, in addition to pointing them right to the scriptures, Jesus is also pointing them to a very well-known incident in the building of their own temple that they were standing inside. One author wrote this. He says that when the temple was under construction, stones were quarried miles away and transported to the temple mount. 40 feet wide, 20 feet high, these stones were massive, yet they fit together so perfectly that no mortar was needed, for not even a knife blade could fit between them. Tradition had it that one stone arrived on the scene but because no one could figure out where it was supposed to go, the builders rolled it off a cliff into the Kidron Valley. Not until the foundation was complete did the builders discover they were one stone short. And sure enough, the stone they had rejected was none other than the cornerstone. So here Jesus pulls from that incident right? He pulls from Psalm 118. He says, look, haven't you guys read that the one who was rejected, the one who was cast away, indeed would be the chief cornerstone, and I'm standing here right in front of you. And when we look at what happened with the Jews, isn't it ironic that in everything they were doing to reject Jesus as the Messiah, all they were really doing was confirming that he was the Messiah, right? So they've, they've beaten, they've killed the servants, right? They've killed the son. They've rejected the cornerstone. Look in verse 43. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. I don't think Jesus could possibly have been much clearer. He bluntly announces here as a result of their continued rejection that these men could expect that God was going to pass the leadership of the nation and give it to others who would be more fruitful. And Israel, after the flesh, was about to be put aside. This kingdom that they'd been waiting so long was going to be lost to them forever. And instead, in the end times... There will be a whole new elect nation, a regenerated Israel, who's going to possess this kingdom eventually. But in the meantime, the grace of God would go out to the Gentiles. right? And that happened, didn't it, historically? Israel has been set aside as God's chosen people. The, there's a hardening that's come upon the race that rejected the Messiah. right? Jesus is now working to reach the world through the church, through the church that's made up both of believing Jews and Gentiles. God loves the Jews. They are his chosen people. He will once again turn his attention back to them. But at this point now, Peter says we are a holy nation. We are God's own people. And this parable of the wicked workers, I think, is so interesting because it looks backward 
but it also looks forward, right? It traces all of God's dealings with Israel in the past historically, the way that they rejected the messengers, but it also looks ahead prophetically, not just to what would happen days from that point, but also what would happen far in the future, right? Their rejection of the chief cornerstone would bring judgment upon them. And Jesus starts to conclude in verse 44, he said, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So there was a choice set before those religious leaders, and it's the very same choice that's before every person today. We can either choose to be broken in humble surrender before the Lord Jesus, or we can be broken in judgment one day by him. And notice that verse The first part of that verse, notice that the stone is on the ground, but in the second part of the verse, notice that it says it's descending down from above. And that's important because what that refers to is that it suggests the two advents of Christ or the two times that Jesus will come to earth. When he came the first time, He came as a man, he came as a savior, he came as a deliverer, he came in mercy and grace. And we know that the Jewish leaders stumbled over him, but they weren't humbled before him. They were never broken in repentance. And so when he comes again in his second coming, at the end of the age, we know that he's going to descend from heaven in judgment and he's going to justly scatter all of those who were his enemies, he's going to scatter them like dust. And I loved what one commentator said. He said, like a painting from a great master, Jesus is not on trial. Those who look at him are. These leaders who rejected Jesus had to hear the eventual consequences of their rejection. Truly, Jesus Christ is our rock. It says in Romans that to the Jews... He's a stumbling stone. It says in Daniel that to the Gentile nations, he's a smiting stone. But to the believer, Paul tells us in Ephesians, he's the foundation stone. And either you're going to fall broken on him and be saved, or he's going to fall on you and you're going to be crushed. And the choice is up to you. I would highly recommend the first. I would highly recommend building your life upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And there's a lot here for us in this idea of the cornerstone. Of course, it's a a construction term, right? It was the, the most, it was supposed to be the very first stone, the most important stone laid in any building, because they would put that cornerstone in place first, then they would measure every other stone in that building off of that stone. So in effect, every stone in that building had a direct and a personal connection to that cornerstone. Every other stone had a relationship, you could say, with that cornerstone. And because every other stone was measured off of that cornerstone and because every other stone was in a right relationship with that cornerstone, now you had a building that was true and it was straight and it was stable and it was steady and it was safe to walk into. But if not, if those stones aren't related to and in relationship with, if they're not measured from that one cornerstone, now you could have a building that's not square, it's not parallel, it's likely not safe or steady. And obviously Jesus is that cornerstone. What a, what a cornerstone physically is to a building, Jesus is spiritually to our lives. As we make him that most important stone in our lives, we make him the most important part of our lives, and we measure every part of our lives back to him. In Isaiah, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, and the one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And God is speaking to men and women 
everywhere when he speaks to Israel about this cornerstone. His precious son who provides that firm foundation for their lives if they would simply turn to him and trust in him. Now, for us, the cornerstone is set in place when we receive him, right? When we anchor our lives to him. But it doesn't stop there. See, having made him our savior, we make him our Lord now by measuring every part of our lives back to that stone. The things that come out of my mouth, how I live my life, my thoughts, my actions, my motives, the ways that I spend my time or the things that I'm pursuing, even the the place that I work, the place that I live, all of those things need to be measured and need to be rightly related back to the cornerstone. When you do that, now you start to have a life, you start to have something that's solid, You start to have something that can withstand all the storms of the light. It can start to withstand whatever it is that's thrown against it. And you don't need to worry in the midst of a trial if this thing is going to hold up or not. You don't have to worry if you're going to make it through or or your life is going to be standing at the end of the storm because it's all tied back. It's all built upon him and it's all safe and sound. So the cornerstone ensures stability to a home and Jesus ensures stability in our lives, right? It holds our lives together. It gives us a model. We never need to worry. We never need to be ashamed if we're living this kind of a right relationship measured back to the cornerstone. Given that, why would anyone possibly reject the chief cornerstone? Look what happens in verse 45, though. It says that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, look what it says. It says they perceived that he was speaking of them. (laughs) So certainly they knew how significant this scripture was. They, They knew that, I think, that they were the builders who had rejected the stone. And so look what we read in verse 46. It says that they repented immediately of their sins Oh, you guys have a different translation than I do? I have the good news translation of him. No, 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 I didn't mean that. That would be good news, right? What does it say? They perceived that he was speaking of them, but they sought to lay hands on him. They feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. This is amazing to me. They saw themselves in the parables. They saw themselves in the prophecies. And yet they didn't repent. They had no desire to obey the word of God. And instead, notice how they become even more determined in their sin. And one author, I think, asked a great obvious question, right? We see these men, they see themselves in the stories. And he asks, who told them so but their own guilty consciences? It says in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There is such a great danger in hardening our hearts to the voice of the Lord. We make our hearts rigid and solid and impregnable by the Spirit as he's calling us to come to Jesus. And maybe you've heard the voice of the Lord speaking to you today. Maybe there are areas in your life that aren't anchored the way that they should be. Maybe there is no chief cornerstone at all yet in your life. Everybody in this room, right? Everybody in the world, Jesus says, has one of two relationships with the cornerstone, right? With him. The one is that we can be broken before him and we can fall down in our brokenness and we can confess him as savior. We can put our faith in him or we can resist God's call. We can reject Jesus in our lives and then we can continue to just measure our lives off of all those other cornerstones that are out there. And yet the fact is, that every single person who lives today apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ is paying a tremendous price to do that. 
They're paying it sometimes on a physical level and always on an emotional level and on a spiritual level. And you think about all of the different models and all the different cornerstones that are out there to anchor ourselves to and how many people are suffering terribly today because they haven't chosen Jesus as the chief cornerstone. They're bearing the weight of their own sins and they're bearing the weight of the world and it's driving them to drugs and into addiction and into self-harm and into discouragement and into hopelessness when we're meant to let God God says, the Bible says God wants to take us under the shelter of his wing. The, the Bible says we're to let the cornerstone carry all of that load. So there's this terrible price that's being paid presently when we're meant to be walking with God and obeying him and serving him. And when we're, be, when we're meant to be making a difference every single day in, in the expansion and in our influence in the kingdom of God. And those things that will bring meaning, those are the things that will bring meaning and bring purpose and bring value and bring excitement to our lives. Those are the things that will satisfy when none of those other things ever will. And when we're not living that way, we are doing damage when we're paying a price. So if you're here and you're not a Christian today, today's the day to become one. That's what you were made for. You were made to be in relationship with the chief cornerstone. And for some, it may mean having to turn away from a religious system or turn away from a religious background that maybe your family has been a part of for generations or maybe a, a, something that you've invested your life in and to, to admit that that true authority is in Jesus Christ and what he says in his word. And if that's you today, then so be it. Turn away from that and come into this life that Jesus has for you rather than a religious system or a religious man or a religious teaching or whatever it is that's keeping you from him. Now this morning we're going to celebrate communion. And for us as believers, it's a blessed time to look back at his sacrifice and to look forward to his second coming. And for those of you who aren't yet believers... It would be a tremendous time to become a believer. We're going to have the communion elements available. It's self-serve. You just come up as we worship and you take the elements back to your seat and you do business with the Lord if you need to. You pray and you, you confess to him and you share your heart with him. If you're not a believer, there'll be people up here that'll be available to pray with you about those things, to help to lead you and to guide you into making that step and to, to, to being broken before the cornerstone. We'll have some of the pastors available as well as we pray. But we want to invite you during this time, if you've yet to make that decision, um, make this morning the best morning of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord, and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the way that it penetrates um, even the hardest of hearts, Lord. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning that's struggling, Lord, as your spirit speaks to them, Lord, and they sense that, that something here is true, Lord, they sense that that you're drawing them, Lord, and yet they're afraid. Lord, I pray that your spirit would cast out that fear. Lord, that they would, um, they would come and they would ask for prayer. Lord, that they would ask questions. Lord, that they would allow us to come alongside them. Lord, as your spirit draws them into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So, Lord, we pray during this time of communion, Lord, that you would just bless that you would pour out your spirit here amongst us as we worship. Lord, as we praise you for your sacrifice. Lord, and as we look ahead expectantly to what it is that you want to do in and through each of our lives. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Let's uh, celebrate communion.